Everyone eats out every day, but people don't think about how food arrives on the plate. This is Grounded, and I'm Lauren Mitchell. Join me as we delve deep into the challenges, expertise, and experiences of professionals and innovators in the food service industry. Grounded is powered by the Buyer's Edge Produce Division. Our mission is to provide innovative solutions and excellent service to food service operators. Hey, welcome to Fresh from the Field, where we give an update on what's going on as far as fresh produce out in the industry and in the fields. This week, I have Stephanie File, our Chief Procurement Officer, giving us an update on how things have landed in Yuma. For those of you who are aware, the transition is a period where we move product from Salinas into Yuma, and that, that season has now officially, quote, ended and landed in Yuma. So Steph, how did that go and what can we expect for the next couple of weeks? Um, yes. Hey, Lon, thank you. And I hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. Um, we did. We had a great transition this year. Over the past several years, we've had a lot of ups and downs with transition. This year, transition went very smooth. Growers did work very hard to plant seeds that were resistant to INSB. And that was a tremendous win. We did not see the issues with the virus this year. And we landed in Yuma with a lot plentiful product. Um, we did see issues with carrots and berries, but even those items seem to be getting better now. This December, we hope to see plentiful supply in lettuce, broccoli, cauliflower, and more. Keep updated by checking out our weekly market reports. And let's hope that things keep running smoothly. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you. His guest is the founder and CEO of Every Table, a restaurant chain on a mission to transform the food system to make delicious and healthy food affordable and accessible to everyone everywhere. He's also the founder and board member for Feast and author of For the Love of Money. I am so excited to have you, Sam Polk. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Yes. Difficult to track you down. You're a busy guy. I've got a, uh, well, it's, it's, it's hard, as you know, running a big food business with fresh prepared food. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. So I want to get into that. Um, I, I've been very passionate. I've seen a lot about every table. It's certainly a standout concept. But before we go there, um, you know, you're named a social entrepreneur in the industry. Tell us what that means and where it was born in, because I know that you haven't always been in this food service space. Um, so take us back to the early days and kind of what struck you to get into this space. Yeah. So the idea of social entrepreneur is harnessing the power of business to solve real social issues in the world. And you know, as you mentioned, I haven't always been um, in this space. I actually started my career on Wall Street, where I was a bond and derivatives trader and then a hedge fund trader. And basically, you know, at 30 was a senior trader at one of the largest hedge funds in the country. And then basically had sort of like a quarter life crisis where I ended up reading a lot of books about civil rights and um, was really inspired about the um, equality that, you know, those brave activists were fighting for. And so decided that I wanted to, you know, do some small part um, in that area. And so ended up leaving my career on Wall Street and um, really not knowing sort of what I was going to do until uh, one weekend, my wife and I sat down and watched a bunch of Netflix food documentaries. And <laughs> 
One uh, was called A Place at the Table, and it was really about the intersection of food and poverty. And it talked about this idea of what they called food deserts and food justice. And and to me, it was this, you know, understanding that there are many, I mean, thousands of neighborhoods in America where there's no access to really good food, fresh food, um, but tons and tons of fast food and junk food. And to me, it just seemed like this idea that like healthy food should be accessible to everyone and should be a human right and not a luxury product, which is what it's effectively become. And so, you know, that simple idea really led to the last sort of decade of work in my life. Um, the first thing we did was started a nonprofit that was then called Grocery Ships, is now called Feast, that basically works with parents in underserved neighborhoods who want to get themselves and their families healthy. And, you know, I can tell you all about that, but we were basically running groups of peer support groups of moms who were trying to figure out how to be healthy amidst an environment that really caused them not to be. And so it was sort of through that work in South LA that, you know, I came to understand what is obvious, which is that, you know, folks in underserved neighborhoods want access to healthy food. And so then I started thinking about like, well, if if there's demand for this food, why is there no supply? And mm -hmm. that led me down this, you know, apropos to this conversation, but this totally fascinating deep dive into the food system and education on how America's food system works, which I'm still learning a tremendous amount every day because it's so interesting and so complicated. But we, you know, to jump to the conclusion, figured out a way to make, you know, fresh, healthy, made some from scratch, farm to table food for less than the price of fast food. Wow. Wow. And and when you say that you're speaking in specific to every table in, ter in terms of that product, correct? Okay. <clears throat> so every table sold more than 5 million fresh prepared meals throughout communities, college campuses across greater LA and through a combination of grab and go markets, home delivery service and smart fridge vending machines. If, if someone were to walk into an every table in a community, tell us about what it looks like, what the concept is, because it's different than, than walking into a fast food restaurant, so to speak. So tell us kind of what they would expect to experience and see and, and kind of what that's rooted in as well. Yeah. So you would walk into an every table and the first thing you would notice is just like beautiful design, a very clean and bright aesthetic. And there would be tables for people to eat at, and you would probably see some of those tables filled. And then there would be a wall of refrigerators similar to what you'd see at Pret-a-Manger in New York City with all of these you know, freshly prepared items, including sandwiches, salads, wraps, hot plates, which is actually our biggest seller. So for hot plates, think about you know, uh, a roast salmon with a lemon maple sauce and brown rice or a Jamaican jerk chicken with coconut beans and rice. Um, and then also fresh made bakery and desserts that we make um, that are all um, gluten free and many are vegan and using fresh whole food ingredients that we bake from scratch. And then a collection of, you know, drinks and desserts and, um, and juices to really round out the meal. And so you'll see people, you know, coming in for lunch and eating with a group of people, or you'll see people coming in and buying, you know, five or six meals that they can keep in their own fridge for the rest of the week. Very cool. And so the price point, would I be correct in saying that it's different based on the community it's serving? Yeah, we basically have two 
sort of structural price pricing. And, and we do this because, you know, going back to our mission of making nutritious food uh, accessible to everyone everywhere, we wanted to make sure that we were bringing value to all of our customers, but that we were also truly accessible to all customers. And so, you know, our higher price points, which you'll find in neighborhoods like Chelsea in New York or Santa Monica in Los Angeles, we're selling meals for seven or eight bucks. So incredible prices. But a ton of our stores are in what you might call food desert neighborhoods like Compton and South LA and Watts and East Los Angeles. And in those neighborhoods, we'll sell the same meals for a couple bucks less. So, you know, five to seven dollars. And the key to this is that, you know, it is true that we're taking sort of like rent costs lower in underserved neighborhoods, um, but we're also just taking lower gross margin. And the reason we're doing that is because we want to make sure that we're accessible for everyone, but we also wanted to make sure that we're profitable in every store. So I think that that's a really important thing to us, which is that this is not, you know, a charitable structure. Like it's charitable in terms of like our ethos, but the thing that we wanted to make sure of is that we can make profit in stores in underserved neighborhoods. And that was important to us because it, it kept our eyes focused on our true customer. I mean, everybody's our customer, but, you know, more than anything, we want to please that, you know, you know, 27 year old in Compton who has huge ambitions for her life and really wants to figure out how to make it in a in a world that is increasingly tough to make it in. Um, and so we wanted to have her back and make sure that we were sort of addressing her needs in the most appropriate way. I wanna ask about your franchising model. I read about it and it has captivated me ever since. And, and I wanna just, first of all, make sure I have my facts straight, but is it true that you provide a pathway for your employees to eventually become franchisors if they'd like? Is that still a model in place? hundred percent. And, you know, I think the big theme for all of every table is that we want to do things that are making the world a more equitable place while also building a massively economically powerful business. And so if you think about franchising, like franchise, there's a, there's a lot of reasons, good reasons that these major chains, McDonald's, Burger King, Taco Bell, Chick-fil-A, all, all these guys do franchise. And that's because, it really lowers the capital that you as the business need and puts that risk and the need for capital on the franchisees and also motivates them because now they're their own business owner. So we love that model for capital reasons, but we started looking at franchising and we came to understand that, you know, like so many industries in America, it was really only for people who had been able to accumulate a lot of capital. And, you know, on some level, that's about, you know, talent and hard work. Uh, but on another level, it's just clear that that with 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 significant talent and hard work, there's still a, a correlation to what zip code you were born in and what opportunities that provides you. And so we said, maybe we can use this model to help sort of address those structural inequalities. And so we went to, you know, major foundations like Kellogg Foundation, Annenberg Foundation, Dignity Health Foundation, um, Kroger Foundation, and basically got um, capital that they would have ordinarily donated as grants. But we said, give us those, that capital and we will lend that capital to these entrepreneurs who are managers in our stores who are kicking butt, mm -hmm. incredibly talented, but 
are, just don't have either the capital saved or really access to credit. But we can vet them because we know them and they work hard for us. And, you know, we, we've seen that over the years. And so we'll lend them the money that comes from these foundations so that they can own their own every table stores. And, you know, to date, we've raised in the neighborhood of, I think, $18 million for this. And we'll keep raising. And frankly, if we're successful with this, with rolling it out at scale, it will be the primary way that every table rolls out stores across the country. Wow. Investing in your people. That is amazing. Just, I love that. Um, again, that's the, that's how I was drawn to you. That's what I read about. And I, we deal with a lot of different franchise models and that's just so unique and so special to the every table brand. So I, my hat goes off. Appreciate that. Um, so besides the storefronts, you know, I saw smart vending. That's certainly something that we're popping up with, um, everything from simply good jars to farmer's fridge. And, you know, for those folks who don't, you know, may not wrap their brain around smart vending. If you're walking through the airport, you see refrigerated cooler space, you can get, you know, a salad or quinoa in a jar. Um, what what drives the items that you're selecting to produce on the menu? How quickly can those change? Um, I guess it also just speaks to, do you prep and cook the food in the restaurant or is it a commissary base? You know, for those in supply chain, kind of talk to us a little bit more about the structure of where the yeah. food's getting prepared and how you're selecting the items. Well, I mean, that is the basically like very simple, but very dramatic structural difference that every table put in place versus a standard restaurant chain. So take Sweetgreen, for example, which we're big fans of. I think they do an incredible job. Um, so Sweetgreen is, you know, they'll, let's say they open 30 restaurants in Los Angeles. Well, each of those restaurants is really its own food production facility. And, you know, good for them. They do it really well. It's really fresh. It's really delicious. But the problem with that from our perspective and just from every table's mission, which is that because every restaurant is its own food production facility, that means you have to buy equipment for every one of those restaurants. You have to have duplicative sets of teams. You have to pay a lot of rent to house a kitchen and all of those. And, and, and then you need to, a lot of people to operate those locations. And so for all of those reasons, it means that you have to charge $15 a salad. You know, like Sweetgreen gets a lot of grief for an expensive salad, but they're actually a pretty good deal because all the fast casual restaurants are doing that because when you're making food on site, it's expensive. Well, the problem with people in South LA is not in terms of food, is not that they don't like salads, it's that they can't pay $15 for a meal. And so what every table did is we said, okay, we're going to figure out how to make the same quality whole food ingredients made from scratch, but do it in a way that makes it affordable. And the simple answer to that is centralizing production and then having small footprint grab and go stores. And so for us, we have a, you know, two commissaries. One, we have a 40,000 square foot commissary in Vernon, just south of, of downtown Los Angeles, and then an 8,000 square foot commissary in Brooklyn. And at these locations, we're taking ingredients often directly from farms. We're cooking everything from scratch. So, you know, our cooler is like produce, you know, raw protein and grains, et cetera. So we're not getting pre-cooked stuff. We're not, a, we're not just an assembly shop. Like we're actually doing cooking. 
but we're doing it at scale. And so, you know, you imagine you're, you know, you know, you know, baking chicken for 10 salads and then imagine you're baking chicken for 10,000 salads. Like it's just a different scale, even though it really is the same process at the end of the day. And then we'll take those meals and package them in grab and go containers. And then we have a fleet of our own refrigerated vehicles that take these meals to our stores. And if you remember the description I gave of like a sweet green, our stores are sort of, just more efficient in capital and operation expenses versus those. So, you know, a standard restaurant will be 2000 square feet of space. Ours will be 700, you know, a standard restaurant will cost a million and a half dollars to build. Ours will cost 300,000 because there's no hood. There's no back of house kitchen. It's basically just refrigerators, tables, stuff to heat the food and that's it. And so, and so because of that, because we're not doing any food prep, we also can operate those locations with a single person. And so you can see it's the combination of the efficiency at the kitchen and the ability to um, staff those locations with a single person that can do, you know, seven, eight hundred, nine hundred thousand dollars of revenue that drives the sort of like efficiency that drives the cost down. Love it. So commissary essentially in LA, one in New York. Do you have plans to expand to a different state in um, 2024 or 2025? Or are you just going to stick within the radius of, of I mean, LA and New York for now? We have you know full nationwide plans. I think next will probably be the Midwest and Texas and Florida. Um, at the same time, as you can imagine, like the, the power of this model is really in the density within a geographic sure. area, which is also why we actually run so many businesses from this same commissary. And what I mean by so many businesses is like, you know, the, the funny thing about healthy meals is like, everybody wants to eat them. And there are so many different um, opportunities or reasons for you to eat them. You could be at home, you could be out and about on the go, you could be at work. And then more and more, it could be provided to you as a benefit from the government or subsidized by your medical insurance because they want you to be healthy, et cetera. And so, you know, on one level, every table is a very simple business where we're basically you know, making fresh, delicious meals and bringing it to a refrigerator near you. And we're just doing that over and over again. But we've also had to develop the ability to like sell into hospitals and sell into the government and run our own stores and build a smart fridge business so that we can create that density within a market. Because we, we didn't even get into this, but like that's the big that's the big challenge of fresh prepared food is that it goes bad really fast, right? We've only right. got five or six days of shelf life. Whereas most of the food that dominates the American landscape is shelf stable stuff that can last for years. So if you think about why, why the, the food system looks like it does, and by which I mean dominated by fast food and dominated by consumer packaged goods like Doritos and Pepsi and cereal, is because when those guys are making Doritos, they can make it in a massive, massive factory with huge economies of scale, huge automation. And then because it never goes bad, they can send it all over the world. It can sit on retailer shelves forever. So retailers love it because they have no inventory risk and customers love it because that structure makes it low prices, um, which is why it dominates the world because you know we were we were making, and it's very tasty, but we made all of this sort of system before we understood that that food will kill you. 
You know what I mean? And so it's like, that's what every table is doing is trying to figure out how to learn from food system version one, which was really about making processed, delicious, shelf-stable food, and then apply that to fresh whole food, which is where the world needs to go. So you tackle the greatest challenge, which is one of my questions. What is the greatest challenge to um, your business model? And I would agree. I would say it's just the, the predominance of, of, of fresh items on the menu and just knowing the shelf life and, and getting them to plates. But what would you say is a disruption in, in first of all, our, 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 our U.S. right now that's actually creating the greatest opportunity for, for this concept? I mean, I would say two things. Like One is like consumer sentiment is changing, right? Like I like McDonald's as much as anybody else. It's delicious. I think we're all clear that you can't eat that every single day for, you know, your whole life without consequences, right? So people want fresher, healthier food. And then the second thing is like, and this is like a terrible sort of tailwind for our business, but unfortunately, you know, given the obesity crisis and diabetes crisis, like it's become clear that as an economy and as a country, we cannot afford the level of sickness that our food system is creating, which means there's a tremendous amount of government dollars and healthcare industry dollars going into food as medicine. Being new to this space within the last decade, let's say, what has surprised you the most about the restaurant and food service industry? I mean, that's a really good question. Like, I think that there is, it is, first of all, like very complicated and it is very sort of like disjointed and disjointed is not the right word. It's like, um, uh, what is it called? Like not concentrated, unconcentrated. And so there's so many different parts of it all sort of working together like an organism, but not a lot of sort of like thought put through together on sort of like how it should be structured. So it's almost like you find these different avenues of like who makes equipment and who repairs equipment and who even knows about that equipment. Like the, like what I wish was that there is an Amazon that is like, here's all the food production equipment that I can just buy, buy, buy. But instead I've got to call like John in Cincinnati, who's the one guy that understands like what kind of onion peeler i I need to get basically. Fair enough. Um, all right. So how about brand focus? Other than the food being fantastic, why should people choose every table? I mean, you know, if you think about, I would say that there's a few things like our value propositions are pretty clear, right? It's like incredibly affordable, incredibly delicious, incredibly healthy and incredibly fresh and incredibly convenient. Um, the thing that we have learned about our customers is that our customers are not, you know, people that hate cooking or hate real food and just don't want to be bothered by cooking. Like think about Soylent, for example, like those are not our customers. Our customers are people that love fresh food, love cooking, but like all of us, we live in a modern world where we're not, we're just not able to cook for ourselves and our families every single day. And so what people end up doing with every table is they augment their fresh scratch cooking at home with every table because it's a great option for you. It probably, frankly, tastes better than when you cook. And um, it's it's it, it actually would save you money if you in integrated both the ingredient cost and the time to go shopping and the time to prepare the food and clean up for yourselves. 
about reverse logistics? So if you've got the stores with prepared meals and everything ready to go for either people to take away or to eat there, um, do you have an, an output for the food that you have left over? Or is this kind of a space that you also feel to be, could use some dedicated attention and focus in the industry? Well, we, I mean, you know, First of all, I think there is a good player in the industry, too good to go um, on this on this front. I, I, I think they're a good idea. They actually, I don't think they've made the economics work for the businesses that work with them yet. So I think there's an opportunity there. But if you think about it from our perspective, the goal is not to have any waste whatsoever. And what's mm -hmm. really interesting about that is that the more distribution hubs, by which I mean stores, smart fridges, food service customers, e-commerce customers, the more, the greater our ability to manage that waste. And what I mean is, you know, one of the things that I learned pretty quickly was this idea of sort of statistical fluctuations, which is that if you go to one of our stores, if you go to our Hoover store on, in South Los Angeles, you know, you may predict that we're going to sell 17 jerk chickens today. But the truth of it is, you have no idea. Like you, you may sell 17 on average, but one day you might sell 26, one day maybe five, right? And so, and that's because imagine like a, a tour bus comes by and 20 people get off or somebody really likes jerk chickens and buys seven for the week. And so what you have to do is know that you're not going to be able to accurately predict that from a daily basis. And you have to set up a system that allows you to correct for your mistakes in forecasting. And so mm -hmm. what happens with our system is that like, will we know, and, and the, the really interesting thing is that when you, that's true on an individual store level, but when you add all the stores together and all the smart fridges together, then it's actually really predictable. On a big macro level, you absolutely know in Los Angeles, I'm going to sell 27,000 jerk chickens today. And so what we'll do is we'll make 27,000 jerk chickens. And then at the last minute, we will say, okay, this store was supposed to sell 17 today or yesterday, but it only sold 10. So we're going to take the other 17 that we were going to send to this store and reroute it to a different store. And that ability to sort of like rebalance allows us to get closer and closer to 0% waste. And then we're probably going to implement something where it's where we have a little shelf that is sort of like those bakery shelves that says, this actually did make it to the day of expiration. So 30% off, it's still great. If you want to eat it right now, you can get a great deal. Yeah, that ability to transfer within market is 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 very unique to your model. And I was, I was hoping that you were going to incorporate that as part of your response. That's fantastic. <clears throat> All right. So if you could write the the vision for this brand or even just your work specifically in general, Sam, where are you in five years from now? And again, if you got to kind of toss off the bat lines for any concerns, you know, what would be ideal for either every table or just the work and mission that you're working on right now? I mean, I think to understand, or my answer to that question is that five years for us is not sort of how long we're looking. Like we've got a 30 year plan and I don't mean like a detailed, this is what we're doing in year 26, but I do mean like an understanding that this scope of work is it's food. And so it's like how it, it it's not Facebook that you just spread it all over the world in three years. It's like, you've got to build the capacity to sell as you've got to 
You've got to build the logistics. You've got to hire all the people for every step of the way. And you've got to get the customers to buy into that. But the system that we've put together is one that we think is capable of massive systems change, meaning that you're going back to those scale economics, like, you know, you get 500, 800 stores in the Southern California area. That means that you can, you know, every year, fast casual goes from 15 to 16 to 17. And every table should be able to go from seven to 650 to 625 to six. And that pricing differential, like we don't try to talk about pricing as much to customers because nobody wants to buy cheap stuff, but the quality is so high, but the back end is so efficient that we think that we can make it just more and more easy for you to eat healthy such that it continues to dominate a share of the wallet and also becomes frankly like a moat that is unscalable. So we're going for largest food company in the country. If we get there, you know, you know, that's that's unclear. Yeah. How about risks? What do you feel are the greatest risks in your line of work right now? I mean, the easiest one is, and I don't mean the easiest one, the most terrifying one is food safety. Sure. Where, you know, fresh perishable food is dangerous. And so you have to have the most intense quality and 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 cleanliness and QA and um, sanitation processes, period. And it's like, you know, we are relentless about this. And it's also like, you know, you take your eye off the ball for one single second and you can be in trouble. As we saw with, you know, big players like Daily Harvest, you know, last year and then Chipotle the years before. So that's our sort of like big risk on some level. Um, and then the second thing is just, you know, there's so many opportunities for every table, whether it's, you know, home delivery or smart fridges or food as medicine and or college and university or healthcare or, you know, selling food in Target or, um, you know, selling food in Bristol Farms. So for us, it's really about like managing the business, sequentially growing, being very, very disciplined because, you know, you asked me what else is surprising about the food business is like, food business is a gnarly business. Like it is like incredibly low margin, incredibly high competition, incredibly operationally and people intensive. And so the discipline required to drive 20% margins at the store level is challenging, you know? And so just building that culture of profitability into the system um, while we're going for fast growth and high scale is, is, is tough. Awesome. Well, a few questions just to wrap up more on the personal side that I call rapid fire. What's a daily habit that keeps you grounded? Uh, just talking to my wife. I mean, my wife is, you know, my best friend and my closest person and my rock. And she's, she's an entrepreneur herself. So she's like, you know, I'm probably the less talented one in the family. And so just, you know, my time with her is what, you know, keeps me going. Love it. How about a tool in your workday that saves you the most time? I have, uh, I basically carry multiple screens with me at all times. So I've got a, a my MacBook and an iPad and a, and a, and a hotspot. And so I Uber everywhere and I will set up in the back of an Uber with like my three screens. Wow. For hours. Best. Okay. Those that aren't familiar with living in LA, I have a brother who lives there. So he'll call me on his hour and a half drives for 22 miles 
That is a fantastic answer, Sam. Fantastic. Okay, to the next generation of supply chain, procurement, food service professionals, those coming up and into this industry, what is your best secret that you're willing to share? I don't know if this is a secret. It's more like a philosophy. You know, my story was about taking the ambition that I had to do well on Wall Street and the sort of like deep care, sort of rooting for the underdog is one way to put it, but like my deep interest in like equality and justice and fairness and putting those together. And, and that's actually a key sort of value of every table is like, is like taking multiple things and figuring out the best way to hold all of them together. And when I think about supply chain, what worries me about some of the idealistic folks that are coming up is that they're only seeing one side of the equation. So I have a lot of people that talk about, you know, the stuff that they really care about, which is really important, regenerative, organic, et cetera. But in my mind, unless you can figure out how to make that work for everybody instead of just being a luxury product, then you're avoiding the real work that needs to happen. Good one. How about a mentor? Who's been a mentor for you? Oh, that's in, easy. I mean, I've, I've a lot, but my 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 boss on Wall Street was a guy named Michael Meyer, who, you know, I had a I had a interesting childhood, let's say, that left a, a few scars. And, you know, when I got on the Wall Street, like this guy just sort of took me under his wing and you know, I became his assistant and then a lead trader for him. And then when I was moving on to a hedge fund, he was the one that helped me do that. And since then was the first investor into grocery ships, was the first investor in every table and has been there every step of the way. So, you know, wow. my gratitude to that guy um, is lifelong. And then um, the other one is Father Greg Boyle at Homeboy Industries, who I don't know if you know Father Greg, but he is this a guy that has built the largest gang recovery nonprofit in the world. And he's one of these people where you see him and it's like all the things that we think are important in the world, success and money and like getting ahead. And then you talk to a guy who has built his life on like compassion and love. And in, in a weird way, it like holds up a mirror to be like, we have this, what we think is important in the world, but this guy has figured it out. Um, and if we were, and all what's the name of his company? Homeboy Industries. Homeboy. Oh my gosh, that's so awesome! Well, I'm gonna. By the way, they've got that. fascinating food supply chain stuff, so you should talk to them for sure. Very cool, Sam. This conversation was even better than I hoped. You are a wonderful individual, and I just thank you so much for dedicating your talents um, to this part of the industry. For those that have listened and have a question, either in a space that they're currently trying to drive. Um, creativity and, and innovation in, in the food service arena, they want to reach out to you. What's a good place uh, for people to find you on LinkedIn? Yeah. I mean, I think there's two things. One, my email is sam at everytable.com. So you can email me. Um, and then two is like, I write a lot about sort of what we're doing and how I'm thinking about it on LinkedIn. And I think that's a great way to connect um, with a lot of people. For those that that don't follow Sam on LinkedIn, he does write some amazing and, and just shares constant information about this part of the industry and what you're doing in general, which is, I love following you. So very cool. Hey, thank you so much for coming on today. Great conversation. Appreciate your time. Awesome. Thank you very much. Good to chat with you. Thank, See you. Thank you, Sam. And that wraps up another episode. 
We have covered a lot of ground today. Thank you for joining. For show notes and our most updated market report, visit us at groundedthepod.com. Grounded is powered by the Buyer's Edge Produce Division. Our mission is to provide innovative solutions and excellent service to food service operators by leveraging technology, talent, and an insatiable appetite to improve. 